Hello and welcome to the installment of the Y Football Podcast with me, Michael Dryden and Eches Adokru. Today, I am very pleased to say we are joined by Ryan Baldy. Ryan has written for BBC Sport, The Guardian, The Independent, amongst others, and is the author of The Dream Factory, Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies. Ryan has joined us today to discuss his new book, the inspiration behind it and his research, and we'll discuss, and we'll discuss the academy system in England. So Ryan, welcome to the to the show. A bit of context, Ryan's got his Boston Celtics top on this morning. <laughs> Very apt for the episode, but um, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm trying to represent the Celtics as much as I can with these uh, podcasts that I'm doing. So uh, <laughs> good, good to get that mention in there, thank you. Yeah, good, good stuff. Um, I have one of the first questions I like to ask all of our guests, because I always get it wrong. Do, do you follow a football team at all, Ryan? No, um, not really. Um, okay. the, the team I look out for most would be Shrewsbury Town. Um, Shrewsbury Town. Of, I, I grew up in Shrewsbury, so, okay. well, around Shrewsbury, so they're, they're kind of my local team I look out for. I should know this because I'm in League One as a Southern fan, but are they League Two or League One? I think they're League, League Two. Yeah, yeah. League, League one. one. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so they're in, they're in your league, Dryden. So so Ryan, we, we, we have an issue on the podcast where Dryden likes to immediately announce that he's a Sunderland fan as quickly as possible. That might be a record because <laughs> we're about thirty five to a minute, thirty five to a minute seconds in. But thank- well, I've just exposed my exposed my League One knowledge. You have early doors. <laughs> you have indeed. So so Ryan, obviously, I've, I've skimmed quite a lot of um, the Dream Factory. I think it's really, really good so far. Honestly, I'm not just saying that. It's been exceptional reading it on my um, Kindle, which I haven't um, used before. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a real good read. And one of the first questions I kind of have for you is, what was the inspiration kind of behind the book? Was it like a eureka moment or was it something you've been thinking about for a long time? Um it definitely wasn't a eureka, eureka moment because I can't really remember how, how it came about. So it, it must have been more of a gradual thing. I think it was just a general sort of fashion, fascination with, um, with with young players, really. I've always kind of been interested in um, finding out who the next kind of up-and-coming player is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the natural extension of that curiosity is to think about how, how they come to be um, mm-hmm. and the system that produces them. Um so yeah, I've always kind of been interested in in uh, academy football, um, more towards like the, the higher age groups of the players who were sort of knocking on the door of the first team and looking at who's coming up next. But the more you kind of look into it, the, the deeper you go and, and learn about the systems and things. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure the exact moment the idea for the book came about, but I do remember thinking that um, quite you know fairly little is known about the, the ins and outs of the academy world. It seems like quite closed off world um so i wasn't sure whether i'd be able to get the access that i needed to to write this book um and it wasn't i i wrote i um, actually wrote about it at the end of the book um i wasn't sure um it was it was doable essentially until um i was kind of halfway through the day i spent with crystal palace at, at their academy i remember just being stood at the sideline watching their under 18s train um, seeing a ride along lawnmower ambling mm. past and just kind of looking around and thinking okay well I'm, I'm in now <laughs> I've, got, I've got, got as far as I need to get with this club and maybe uh, what, what I found was that I think the people who do the day-to-day work are quite quite proud of what they do and quite keen mm. to mm. keen to show it um, so that that was um, that was kind of the real kind of moment that I realised this is this is doable and doors were starting to open so yeah that that's the kind of early inception of it yeah and no, I think um that's is that's a really interesting point of view where you just said about how the members of staff are really proud of their work because 
um, reading through it, one of the burning questions I have was, you know, I'm, obviously you're at multiple clubs, you spoke to multiple people. You know, how did you actually get access? Because the Academy World, I, I'm an Arsenal fan. You know, I, I care quite a lot about Arsenal's under 18s, you know, the 23s as well. But I think that it's shrouded in mystery. And I, I've always wanted to kind of know, as soon as I started reading it, how did you actually get access from those clubs? W- were some more forthcoming than others? You know, was it quite easy to do or was it actually quite difficult, did you find? Uh, it was more, uh, it was easier than I expected it to be. Um, but there were still a lot of clubs. You know, I, I probably visited about a dozen clubs all up and down the country and at, at different levels. Um, I would have asked to go to a lot more. I would have gone to a lot more if, if they'd have let me. Um, but I think I got a good spread in the end. So I managed to get the likes of Man City, United. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Liverpool I went to, but also like down to, to Shrewsbury, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, visited there, uh, Kidderminster, who were a non-league club, who were doing some really interesting things, Colchester, mm. so it was a good spread, and that, that was kind of the main the main aim, but, but yeah, the, I was able to kind of get get there by going directly to the people mm. um, I was looking to speak to. Um, I, I, I've built up quite a decent sort of book of contacts within youth football from... Um, just my general freelance work that I've been doing. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of, I do a lot of uh, sort of profiles of younger players where I go and speak to the coaches who work with them, um, figure out their journey and look at you know, who they are uh, as people more than as footballers. And, and often a good way to do that is to speak to the people who knew them before they, before they were the superstars they, they've gone on to become. So I had a decent amount of contacts within the game, within the kind of youth football game. Uh, mm-hmm. I learned on those. So that's how I've got a lot of the scouts that I spoke to. Um, a lot of the coaches that I spoke to I already kind of had some form of relationship with and then um, kind of leaning on those people to help me uh, put me in touch with others too. So um, one of the, the key uh, interviews for the book was with Tony Whelan, who's uh, Man United's uh, assistant academy manager, is I believe his title. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent about three hours with him. Um, mm-hmm. I went and had lunch with him. <laughs> and he's kind of the star of the book because he's, he's in his late 60s. He's been in part of the United's youth system since uh, 1990, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And he played for United in the 60s. He was uh, the second ever black player to play for Man United. Oh, wow. uh, He's a real, real respected figure, and he's kind of the oracle of, of, of this book in many ways. Um, but I was able to get to get access to him because when I was at Burnley for the day, um, one of the coaches there just said, "Oh, have you, have you spoke to Tony Whelan?" I said, "Oh, no, I don't, I don't know Tony." And he just gave me his number. I texted him, and we set it up. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it kind of snowballs once you get in at one place. You find, mm. uh, kind of, I always say in 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 journalism and in the football world uh, I think like access begets access uh, and uh, mm-hmm. contacts beget, beget contacts so the more the more you have the more you, you find yourself stumbling into so yeah it's kind of a snowball mm. sort of thing with, with regards to being able to get the access that I got Yeah I, mean, I, I, I always assume that football clubs would be incredibly difficult to penetrate and even just I you know, played, you know, quite a, a modest level of football as a, as a kid but sometimes had access to we, we played games at academies and so and co and you'd get some exposure to coaches I never played for academy but it always seemed super serious and professional so I'd always assumed it'd be quite difficult to penetrate those circles from say your perspective however I mean HS and I've discussed it before in previous podcasts a lot of youth coaches they don't get paid much a lot of what they do is actually for a love of the game and love of actually generating kind of players and you know helping young people so actually that actually resonates to what you're saying is to these people are actually possibly very proud of what they do and are actually happy to tell the stories of not only what they do but then the players they've helped bring up not just through the footballing world but then even you know it's been in the press loads recently about Raheem Sterling for example coming from you know 
very modest beginnings to then becoming superstars. So it resonates quite well. Yeah, exactly. It's um, I think they're quite proud of their work for the most part. Um, mm. And I think the general um, perception of, of football academies is quite a negative one. Um, so I think there's perhaps a bit bit of a desire to redress the balance a little bit. Um, so they're keen to, to look at the good work they're doing. And there is a lot of good work being done, both in terms of football development and to, of kind of welfare and the development of the young people who, mm. who the coaches are working with on a day-to-day basis. So um, I kind of wanted to explore all avenues so you know there is a lot of negativity as well which which has been explored before and i go into in great detail as well in the book but um some clubs and and there are a lot of good people uh doing some really good work as well so Mm. it's uh, it's about the balance and it's about the the the, uh, direction of travel i think as well um so that's kind of what i wanted to look at you know most of it i think as i said the the book goes into such detail as you said and and one of the themes which i picked up from it um which is kind of a buzzword for me is e triple p and I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on it so it's the elite player performance plan for those of you that don't know we did an episode on it um literally a year ago it's actually our second episode um, <laughs> which is which is a long time ago but you know i think there are loads of you know beneficiaries from it and I was reading in the book that, you know, roughly it costs three to five million a year to develop a player. So when we see the likes of Bukayo Saka, Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford, you know, play for their clubs, you know, even though they're technically from the academy and I think a lot of fans see them as free, there's so much money and investment that has gone into producing those players. Obviously, on the flip side, you get a lot of academies that sell their players for a lot of money, but the rigged structural of payments for these youth players, I think there's a mention about... Um, Jaden Sancho from Watford to Man City. Do you think, what are your thoughts on Neutral P in terms of its overall inception? And do you think it actually serves a purpose only for the bigger clubs or the elite? That's certainly what the smaller clubs feel. No. Um, because uh, for those who aren't aware, the Neutral P system, the elite play performance plan, is the, the set of rules that govern um, English youth football for the, the top four divisions. Um, any club wanting to run a, a licensed academy has to abide by these these rules. Um, it dictates a lot of things. Um, so, for example, um, it, you're graded. You are um, there are regular audits, and each academy is assigned a grade between one and four, with one being the highest, um, which would indicate the kind of best staffing levels, the best facility levels, the highest investment, and then it trickles down to, to slightly lower ones. And there, and there are kind of, I don't know if rewards is the right word, but there are benefits to being an academy, a category one academy, whereby um, most clubs aren't allowed to recruit players under the age of 16 unless they live within a 90 minute radius of the training ground. Mm-hmm. Um, category one clubs from the age of 14 and up can recruit nationally with the theory being that while that, that 90 minute radius rule is there as a, as protection from children spending too much time on the road and, and the fatigue that that can cause and what that, what they might miss out on as a result, it's kind of mm-hmm. um, the counterweight to it is, is the fact that they'll be exposed to a category one level of coaching uh, and um, it would be better for their development. So that's the theory behind that. And, um, what EPPB also dictates is a, um, a structured, prescribed um, payment system for, for transfers of young players. I mean, the idea of transfers for young players is, is an unsavory notion in itself for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I mentioned it briefly in the book. There was one, uh, a parent of a, of a very high-profile young footballer I spoke to who didn't want to be quoted, didn't want to speak for the book, but he did refer to the the system of transferring players and, and the youth system in general as, as child trafficking. Um, mm. 
he uh, you know, he's got a lot, a lot of strong opinions, and then that's something that has kind of been echoed in, in different ways from, from people I've spoken with. But yeah, the, the prescribed um, payment model um, gives each player a value from so from the age of of from the under nine level when academies can first sign players to exclusive contracts um, from the age of eight and up, uh, each player then is automatically assigned a value. Um, which again is quite an unsavory thing to think about a mm. nine-year-old being having a price tag on their head, um, and then it's based on what level of academy they're training at and how long they've been training at that level. Um, so, a, a player who's been training for who's who might be an, an under sixteen who's been at a Category One academy since he was nine might be worth a few, a few hundred thousand pounds if another club wanted to come in and sign them. If he'd if he'd been at a Category Three for one year, he might be worth. Thirty thousand, or whatever it might be. I'm not. I don't. I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but it's all. It's all stipulated. And it's all. Um, it's all there. And, and what it's what it's there to do is to avoid the need for tribunals and disputes and, and having. I guess what what it what it purports to do is stop players being caught in transfer wrangles. So if they want to move club, everyone knows that the price that has to be paid. So the the, the, the selling club or the club losing the player are compensated, and that the player isn't caught in in a wrangle and left in limbo. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the smaller clubs, as you mentioned, feel that it undervalues their players um, and that it, it's easy then for the bigger clubs, the richer clubs, to stockpile, to come and hoover up talent at will yep. and, and, and hold them all um, as a big stockpile of talent. Because, again, it's something I went into in, in depth in, in, in uh, I think it's the fourth chapter called the, the talent uh, the, the talent arms race, I think they called it, because that's what it's like. It's like an arms race for talent at the top. Um, the way that clubs are recruiting and are desperate to have the best players at younger and younger ages because they're fearful of their rivals having them. So they want if you know if, if the next Kevin De Bruyne, if the next um, whoever you care to name, the next Mohamed Salah is there within this academy system somewhere, they want they want them. They want them as early as possible. Um, so yeah, the, the, the smaller clubs feel that their, their players are liable to being poached away um, at younger ages for for a fee that they don't feel is. Um, Reflects that reflects true value, and I think that in a lot of ways is discouraging clubs um, below the very top level from running academies. That's why Brentford closed mm-hmm. their academy. Yeah, they lost Josh Bowie and Jan um, uh, Povida. Uh, probably not pronouncing that right. The the least player mm-hmm. lost lost them one one, to, one each to Man City, Man United. Um, they said they only received thirty thousand pounds for each player, mm-hmm. um, and they were both, I think, if not England youth internationals, then knocking on the door of that at the time. Um, so they decided to close down the academy, so it's not not a worthwhile endeavour for them. They, they save themselves a million and a half pound a year by just mm. operating a B team model. Um, yeah. So that's kind of an interesting development to see whether each of as it stands, if it refuses to evolve at all, whether it will force more clubs to make that kind of decision and step away from from the academy system as we know it. In, it's such an interesting discussion. I think if you get. The examples of where the success stories happen, it makes sense. So the the idea that almost like this kind of mobility within the game that you know, a player from from Sunderland, Joe Hugel, went to Manchester United for a pretty modest fee. I think it was I think probably two years ago now. Um, however, uh, he's went on to actually do really well for the academy. Um, so it's almost like, but as you say, because of the stockpiling. He could go into that system and just be an extra man that is essentially just making up the numbers for the ones that they expect to win or expect to come through and therefore might actually never make it had they not just stayed at that initial club. Mm. So it's kind of a hindsight kind of element to it, but 
You know, I, I think I completely agree with your your point, Dryden. I think one of the things you kind of alluded to just then was, do you think EPPP will close more academies, or is it at a level now where we've seen the likes of Brentford, as you said, close and it, it's kind of plateaued? Or do you reckon as the years roll on, as you mentioned, it might evolve, we'll see more of them shut down? Yeah, I think I think um, it seems to be moving in a way that more and more of the the clubs without the, the the big budgets are, are wondering whether it is worth it to them. Um, but it's an interesting point of discussion because Brentford now run this BT model, which a few clubs are looking looking to replicate. Huddersfield being being one of them, um, they now recruit players. They only have one you know, one team that sits for the first team of what they call their B team. Um, they recruit players from sort of sixteen to nineteen. Uh, and they they believe every player they recruit now has a genuine chance of playing for their first team. So whereas before they would have had as many as 200 young young players within their academy system with only a fraction of those ever likely to appear for their first team, um, they were criticised at the point at which they closed their academy because it meant that they were, they were um, releasing more than 100, um, I think, you know, young young players at the time, and they were they were criticised for the the kind of heartbreak that that caused. Um, mm. But the, the counterpoint to that, and I spoke to Huddersfield's former director of football for the book because they looked at Brentford's model and, and adopted it in large part. And he his counterpoint was that, well, you know, the initial heartbreak of of releasing these players was something that it kind of a bitter pill to swallow. But in the long run, we're creating a lot less heartbreak because we're only recruiting these players who now have a genuine chance of making it through to my first team. We're not selling any false hope, mm-hmm. which all academies do at the moment. Um, so that would be Brentford's counterpoint. But if you, if you take a step back and, and think about what if every team decided to only recruit players from sixteen and up? Um, Brentford and, and others who are following following their example are still reliant on other teams training those players up to 16. These like, these players aren't fresh to, to, to high-level football at that age. Mm. They've come from somewhere. So if everybody decided, okay, well, we're, we're only going to run a B team, we're only having players from 16 and up, and up, who's training those players up to 16? It would be a complete kind of reboot of the model. Mm. Um, some, something else would have to fill that gap. It would go back perhaps to the the old days of when schools football was the dominant force in, mm. in English youth football, um, which kind of changed in the 90s or thereabouts. It used to be that, that teams couldn't sign players to formal contracts until they signed what they called schoolboy forms at 14. Mm-hmm. Um, so up until the age of 14, um, it was all about schools football. The English schools FA was the predominant force in, in English youth football, um, which it, it no longer is not for a long, long stretch um, because... Uh, I mean, again, it's something uh, done a quite a deep historical element in the book where I look at the the advent of the Charter for Quality in 1997, which really kind of formalised the academy system in this country. It's something that Howard Wilkinson, when he was FA Technical Director, was tasked with coming up with, and uh, he he drew up this academy system based off what he'd seen as examples from from foreign clubs, so looking at Ajax and Barcelona and mm-hmm. others, and, and decided that you know we need to empower the clubs to look after. Uh, this system so if they want to run an academy they need to be running teams from the ages of under nine and up they need to have they have more contact time at younger ages and that's kind of how the, the academy system came about in the late 90s mm. um so yeah what what some of these clubs are now doing are stepping away from that and saying we don't want to be a part of that we don't think it's a worthwhile endeavor we think it's a, a money pit if we're going to be losing players to, to bigger clubs um but yeah like i said if everybody does that then who's training these does the schools football become um, the dominant force again because at the moment it wouldn't be equipped to, to provide the level of training that 
as they'd expect. So maybe young players will start looking abroad earlier. So yeah, it's, it's a really tricky question because if we say, if we accept that the, the model as is, it doesn't work. If P is too flawed uh, to, to work for everybody, then certainly a B team model um, is has too many holes in it to work for everybody as well. So there has to be some kind of middle ground, some kind of meeting in the middle. Mm, and also Brentford benefit from being where they are, London-based. They've got all these teams around them that are releasing these players. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you're if you're somewhere in the southwest or yeah. somewhere in the northeast, um, there's only a handful of clubs around you. How do you pick those players off? Yeah, exactly. Um, they do where where that competition was probably there. Achilles heel for a while because they were, you know, surrounded by the likes of Chelsea and Arsenal. Could all recruit from their same catchment. Mm. Um, they now have that. You know, they're there, there with a, a safety net for the players, or at least you know the handful of, of the better players who have fallen out from those academies now. But um, yeah, like you said, if if somebody out in the sticks decides to do the same thing, who's ever going to want to going to want to go there? It's, it's a really yeah. really tricky tricky thing to kind of think about. Yeah, I think um, you kind of touched on the point about Howard Wilkinson and what he did as a technical director. And also as well, you know, with EPPP coming in, you know, England won the Under-17 World Cup in Goa. He with the likes of Phil Foden starring Jaden Sancho, Emil Smith-Rowe, who obviously I'm a big fan of, um, doing really, really well there. And the Under-19s have seen success. The Toulon tournament, they've seen success. And it kind of, do you think the current crop, is what I'm trying to allude to, has essentially benefited massively from this uh, England's uh, from the EPPP plan or has it been more of an effect of the England's DNA kind of plan which kind of dovetails with it we did an episode on that many moons ago it was basically set up by um, Gareth Ainsworth Gareth Southgate and a few other people as well to kind of refocus on England itself and how they could be successful as a national team which hopefully fingers crossed we're beginning to see at an elite level, right? We're in, we're in the final of the Euros, which I'm going to mention another 20 times on the podcast. But um, do, you, <laughs> do, do you think the current crop essentially has benefited from the EPPP plan to get to where they are now? Um, yeah, I think so. I think um, as, as kind of, as much as um, it sucks in a lot of players at a very young age and at least to stockpile and you know, there are 12,000, just on the boys' side, there are around 12,000 boys in, in academies at any one time, wow. um, and only a small fraction of those ever get through. Mm. And that's a result of, you know, what the Charter for Quality introduced, not EPPP, reinforced. Um, but at the same time, it did increase contact time and coaching quality and staffing levels and facility levels within youth football. So the players who do get through, I do think benefit greatly from it. So that's the kind of catch 22. When you look at the, the fact that we're now in the European championship final, um, does that justify the, the cost of all the, the, the human and the, the, the financial cost of, of everything that, that goes into creating these players? Um, so it's, yeah, again, it's a difficult thing to answer. I, I think, like I said, it's a very flawed way of operating I don't think it's ever going to be right to have so many young people fed uh, false hope um, and brought into a system that is going to discard most of them. I spoke to uh, the Guardian journalist, David Connie, who's done a lot of work in this area. Um, and he said, you've got to look at it from the opposite perspective. If this is a system that we accept and we know takes in 12,000 young boys at a time and whatever, 90 whatever percent of them don't get through and get spat back out and you've got to you can't look at it as a dream factory you've got to look at it as a, as a crushing of dream factory because that's that's what it does that's what they deal in predominantly so you've got to 
as much as developing players is going to be your priority, you've also got to look at how these young people are taken care of and how they're looked after and, and, and to ensure that they don't kind of come back to earth with a bump when they don't get through. Um, so mm. while there are certainly benefits, and, and, and I, I, I would certainly suggest that, that the rules that are in place have helped create a better standard of play. I think a lot of it is, is down to the, the clubs themselves themselves as well because they do have a lot of autonomy with how they operate within those rules. Um, and there's a lot of innovation going on and a lot of really high-level um, work being done by the likes of you know, Man City who produced a Foden and, and did a lot towards um, Jordan Sancho's development, like United producing your Rashfords and Mason Greenwood who's coming through now, um, and like Liverpool. Um, I, I went into quite a lot of detail about the specifics of how Trent Alexander-Arnold was developed at Liverpool. I spoke to some of his coaches and kind of was able to paint a picture of what it was like on the training ground when he was going through his um, his uh his, his development in, from a midfielder into a right back and the frustration that he had, how he sent balls flying across the pitch of the academy with frustration at times, but they kind of had to get total buy-in from him and how they'd have meetings with him and feedback to him about his progress and, and kind of chart his path to becoming one of the best right backs around. Um, so, you know, the, these, the, this, the work that's been done on the training field at, at each individual club has been really important too. And I think those coaches deserve credit for, for, for the success stories we're now seeing. Um, uh, so it's, it's a combination of factors like you said there's the whole uh, England DNA project there's the EPPP um, and then there's, there's the individual coaches and the individual clubs who are doing things in their own way and, and, and doing what they think is best and looking to other clubs and looking abroad at, at best practices and, and adopting them um, and it's difficult to say which which of those factors is most responsible because there's no real way of measuring it but at the moment it's kind of a confluence of all of them that's come together and produced a real, a real, quite incredible crop, really. When you, when you think about it, especially the of the younger players that are coming through, I don't think we've certainly not in my lifetime had the the depth of, of technical players mm. coming through that we've got at the moment. You know, I, I completely agree. Um, in my short time watching England, I'm only 27, or as Dryden likes to say, I look around 50 sometimes. But um, <laughs> I think. When you see the like someone like Phil Foden, I, I wouldn't have imagined England producing a player like him 15 years ago. There, there are other examples as well, but I think it shows the change in the type of quality and the type of style of player that England are beginning to produce at these academies, which is obviously good because you want to see the national team thrive and you, you want to see them do really well. You, t- you touched on earlier about the evil side of you know these plans and how you know rejection for young players isn't very good and you talk about that in the book actually where you mentioned about the 90 minute journey and how they can recruit nationally but what one thing I didn't know was about the satellite um, venues that a lot of these clubs have and the churn of players and I think one of the questions I have to you is are, are clubs trying to rectify this or is it is it a problem which is getting worse in terms of hoarding youth players because I think you're right you know there's one thing being rejected at 18 or 17 or 16, you know, it's a long journey. But to say to a 10-year-old, you know, when you've been told you're, you know, the best of the best, it's still devastating for a young player, you know. And the, the kind of question I have to you to overall is, does more need to be done essentially with the hoarding of youth players? Oh, absolutely. More needs to be done to that end mm-hmm. and, and with preparing them for release. I think mm-hmm. that's a big thing. Um, kind of the feedback mechanisms are in place. It shouldn't come as a shock for any young boy or, or girl in an academy when they're released. It should be 
a gradual thing where, where there's constant sort of feedback and appraisal on it. We're always aware of their progress. Um, so that when, you know, when the time comes that they are let go, they're not just kind of dropped out of nowhere and they don't, it doesn't come as a shock to them because that's something I found to be the case with a lot of people I spoke to because I spoke to players themselves who've been released. I spoke to the parents of the players who've been released. Um, and yeah, it, it comes out of the blue sometimes. And what I found was that the game itself thinks it's a lot closer to cracking these problems than it really is. Um, I spoke to um, the EFL's head of youth, um, David Weatherall, the, the former Leeds and, and Bradford defender, um, and he was he was saying about how there's proper feedback mechanisms in place at any club should be adhering to those and, and that it shouldn't come as a surprise when any young player is released. But that's certainly not what I found anecdotally from the, the people I've spoken with. They, they don't feel that, that, is, that is always the case. Um, and yeah, with regards to stockpiling and, and and having contact with younger and younger players, as I mentioned, clubs can't formally sign a player to exclusive to an exclusive contract until they reach the under nines level. Mm-hmm. Which, um, incidentally, a lot of the coaches I spoke to and a lot of the academy managers um, feel is too young. Um, they would like to see that that age raised to maybe ten or even twelve. Um, mm-hmm. But it is the way it is, and I think it's going to stay that way while um, the. It's kind of arms race for talent that I mentioned is is ongoing. Um, so yeah, what what they do to kind of get around not being able to to work with players and, and sign them until they're in the under nines level is is run um, pre academies uh, and they have like you said they have satellite centres. A lot of clubs where they have a an extra training base, um, maybe a bit further away from their central academy, which would extend their ninety minute radius. So, for example, Colchester, one of the clubs I visited, or Academy Two Academy. Um, I think it's still the case there that in terms of the football league ladder, they're the lowest ranked um, team to, to have an academy as high as a Category 2 level. And that's why I went to visit them and figure out what they're doing. What mm-hmm. what they do is try to um, bridge the gap between where they are and, and, and London mm-hmm. by having a satellite centre in the middle so they can kind of extend their radius to, to catch part of London and still be able to work with some of the London talent pool um, before they're allowed to recruit them formally at 16 um, and Chelsea are a club you have 11 satellite centres around the London and the southwest area um, so yeah they, 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 it enables them to kind of uh, focus on sort of localised talent pools and get as many players through the doors as they can and they'll start looking at them from like 5 and 6 they'll invite them for, for weekly sessions um, I, I was able to um, in one of the chapters, I look very specifically about the, the process of releasing young players and, and what comes next for them, um, looking specifically at players kind of of the really younger age groups in the foundation phase. Um, when I was able to, to reproduce an email that was sent to a parent of a player from a, a Category 1 London club um, who was seven years old at the time, um, he was playing for four uh, four Premier League clubs at the time because, like I said, there, there are no restrictions to you know there's no exclusivity at that age, so they mm-hmm. can train with whoever they want as often as they want. Um, but there was one club in particular he'd been with, and, and the, the parent asked them not to be named because the, the boy still wants to kind of uh, be in be in the system and, and, and follow his football dreams, so he didn't want to burn any bridges. But um, he broke his leg when he was seven. Oh, wow. uh, playing for one of the teams as uh, a, a session with one of these Premier League clubs and of the four clubs that he was training with uh, only one really kind of kept in contact and asked how he was doing uh, the one he'd been with the longest the one he first had first started training with when he was four um, as soon as he recovered from his broken leg he went back to training with them 
and within a few weeks uh, they released him um, and they did it by email and I was able to reproduce this email in the book because um, the, the dad of the, the player that in question kind of read it out for me word for word um, and he was really shocked and disappointed by how impersonal it was. Um, it was one of these kind of automated things where it's it's a it's a boilerplate email and you mm. supposed to infill the name of the person you're you're, you're writing to um, but they didn't do that so it was just like this bracket parent guardian that, um, rather than mm. you know what you're supposed to delete and put in the name of the, of the person you're speaking to which they didn't bother to do there was no, nothing specific to this boy in the email at all it was all your child thank you thank you for your your child's attendance at our, our center um at this stage we don't offer specific feedback but the you know, generally players can improve on this, 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 and this. Um, and I just felt it didn't relate to their experience in any way mm. and that he'd been with this club for the best part of half of his little life, really. Mm. Uh, he went through this real kind of traumatic experience of, of breaking his leg and coming back from that. Um, and then as soon as he gets back and he gets playing again, um, without any indication that he was he was falling behind in any way, he was he was let go in a very, like I said, a very impersonal way. Um so that is one of the real sort of dangers of having a system that sweeps into it so many young people. Um, I mean, because the 12,000 number relates only to those who are signed to academies to exclusive mm. contracts from the denies and up. So there are even more who are having access to, to these academies and satellite centers from, from younger ages. Um, for example, um, I was really keen to speak to a couple of parents of, of, of kind of highly rated and highly sought after young players Um and I was able to do that by speaking to Mason Mount's dad, Tony Mount, uh, about his experience and, and Mason's experience mm. being scouted by Chelsea and their journey um, to that uh, to, to, to where he is now. Um, and also Rian Brewster's dad, Ian. Um, of course, Rian Brewster was at Chelsea as well at a young age. Then he went to Liverpool, uh, Sheffield United. He was part of that, that under-17s team you mentioned who won the World Cup a few years ago. He was the top scorer in that, mm. that tournament. Um, so... He said that when they first went to Chelsea, when Rian was six, um, Ian, the dad, uh, said that each week he noticed that there were a lot of unfamiliar faces. So the parents he saw the week before would be gone, replaced by a new set of parents. Um, and he, speak, he spoke to one of the coaches about it and he said they basically kind of cycle through these boys to see which ones they're going to invite to their central pre-academy uh, up at Cobham. Um, and he said they might go through 350, 400 boys before they find the 12 or whatever that wow. they're going to they're gonna invite. That's the kind of level of, of attrition we're talking about. So, yeah, it, it's a very it, – it's ruthless and and it's very impersonal because, because of the sheer number, I think, um, that, that are being cycled through. Um, and that's a really dangerous element too when, when you're seeing these young children um, discarded so freely. Um and like I said, I think the coaches that are doing the day-to-day work, for the, for the most part, from what I've seen, are aware of their kind of responsibility to these young people, as young people, more than more than just as footballers. And there's some great people doing really great work, but the system itself is kind of rigged in a way that that means that they're they're seen as numbers more than anything. Um, so uh, that is one of the kind of most most worrying elements of it, I find. I suppose it's the pressures between the the pressures from the club versus the like the human element from the youth coach element. I mean, I never thought I'd use this club as a as a good example, but when we go back to your point of preparing um these boys or when they get to say even to like fifteen, sixteen level for essentially for professional football, 
there should be a greater kind of um, responsibility on these clubs. So I never thought I'd use this club as an example, but Chelsea, for example, a lot of um, stick has been put towards them around the whole loan system where they farm out 40 players on loan. But actually, I read an article in The Athletic not too long ago, and I think Izzy Brown was one of the players saying that actually, as much as... I've got no doubt that Chelsea's main motive in that is possibly to make revenue from these players. You know, they load them out, they sell them on for two, three, four million pound a pop. They make a lot of money. However, these players have still had experience out on loan. They're cared for, they're looked after by the club and then they end up going on to have, you know, at least a good professional career. Whereas perhaps compared to some clubs that don't do similar things or prepare these these boys or these these teenagers for professional football, they might get to 16 and 17 and actually not have a chance to move on because they've not had experience like a loan system or anything like that. So I thought that was an interesting example, even though I never thought I'd use Chelsea as a good example in this sort of context. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Um, for my, my, my first book, I interviewed a player called John Bostock. I don't know if he's, he's someone you're too familiar with. Yes, um, a Palace boy went to top. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's it. He was, uh, he's, I think he is still the youngest player ever to play for Palace and Spurs because he, he debuted for Palace at 15 in the Championship mm-hmm. and the next year he went to Spurs and played for them at 16. I think he still holds both records. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just chatting to him um, because he's, his story was, was one that, that um, was a big part of my, the first book, my first book, um, the next big thing. Um, and we, we just kind of, during the conversation, the idea of of um, Chelsea's academy cropped up. And, and he pointed out that, um, he you know, as from the perspective of a young player, you can look at it um, from the outside looking in, you might think, oh, well, why would I go there? Because at the time, no one was getting through. Um, it, it's changed a bit more recently with Mason Mount and Reese James and, and Tammy mm-hmm. Abraham and a few others getting their getting their chances in the first team. But up until that point, they had this they had this you know, really high performing academy. They were winning the Youth Cup every year, but none of the players were getting through to the first team. Like you said, they were being loaned out and they were being sold um, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But but John said that well, yeah, you can look at it that way and say, why would I join this academy? But but from you know. From a from a footballer's perspective, you can look at it and think, well, they're obviously delivering a really kind of high level footballing education, mm. and while they don't while they don't sort of have much of a pathway, they go quite a long way to to guaranteeing a, a, a career within the game, perhaps more so than other mm. academies, because while these while these players don't necessarily get through at Chelsea, they get through somewhere and have go on to have pretty pretty good careers. So, yeah, that that is one element to to the loan system. Um, and given experience in the shop window to players, you know, so although the likes of maybe Lewis Baker or someone would would um, not not have had any real shot at, at making it at Chelsea, he has had mm. tangible first team experience. Um, but I do think, yeah, it's kind of a, a byproduct of their stockpiling, isn't it? It's because mm. they have so many players that they have to learn so many out um, or sell them. I, I personally would like to see something in place whereby you can only loan out a player so many times before before you either have to sell them or they become a free agent or something so they're not stuck in that cycle of being loaned and loaned until you know, all of a sudden they're 25, 26 and they've never played for their parent club. Um, they don't really know where they stand. Um, but yeah, that's just a kind of personal thing that, that I think would be healthy for the game, um, which we're probably never going to see. Yeah, to, to, to that point, actually, I've just got Izzy Brown because I was just double-checking that. Um that point before, and Izzy Brown was actually loaned out by Chelsea on seven occasions. So beginning at Vitesse, and his last one was at Sheffield Wednesday, and he only just joined permanently at Preston North End um, in 2021. So this year, so yeah, to that point, mm. he's had seven loan spells from um, 2015 to this year, which is a bit crazy. Yeah, I um, think there comes a point where um, 
it, it reaches reaches a tipping point. I think initially it can be quite helpful to their development, but uh, but at a certain point when you when you're on your sixth and your seventh line, it's more about kind of treading water and not being able to progress mm. that route somewhere. Which I think there comes an age where a player really needs to kind of establish himself somewhere and mm. not always feel like you know you never can know where you're going to be next season. Yeah, very much so. I think yeah, Chelsea a really interesting example with the way their academy runs and and the players, the sheer number of players that they do have. I think one of the questions which um, I've been dying to ask you is, what surprised you most during your research? Because I think we spoke about before we started the pod, right? Is that academy football is shrouded in mystery? You know, like. There are kids you hear about 15 who are meant to be the next thing and they're not, you know, the inner workings of it is very hard mm. to find a lot of information about. Like I'm dying to know about things about Arsenal's Academy or, you know, Tottenham's or Chelsea's, but, you know, it's shrouded in mystery. And I want what the question I wanted to ask you is what surprised you most um, when you embarked on your research? I think what surprised me most, and it was an encouraging thing, is um, was just how much the coaches care uh, for the most part. Mm. Uh, the ones I spoke to certainly have a real eye on, on developing young people and their responsibility to those people. Um, I mentioned Tony Whelan earlier. He was one who is who is really keenly aware of his the responsibility of his role and the people he works with and their responsibility to the, to the children in their care. Um, at United, they have uh, a philosophy that they call writer's might. Um, it was coined by, I believe, uh, Jim Ryan, the former youth coach uh, at United. He was a long time, very respected figure. Um, and I spoke to guys like Tony Whelan, um, Colin Little, the under-18s coach, and um, uh, Paul McGuinness, who now works for the FA, but was, was at United for a long, long time. He was a very, very, very respected coach within the game. And they talked about how this philosophy of writer's might um, kind of guides what they do with, with their players and, and it's been a real key driver in the development of the likes of Marcus Rashford for example so they don't wish to take any credit whatsoever for all the things we've seen them do over the last uh, year and a half um, but when you look at the the things they do with their young players you can kind of trace back some of the, the roots of what, what he's doing now his kind of altruistic and charitable side his his sense of social responsibility um, was sort of fostered and nurtured within United's academy. Um, some of the things they do, for example, uh, whenever they go on a trip abroad, because often from sort of 10 years older and, and up there, these young players are travelling to tournaments overseas, yeah. um, be that in the States or in, into Europe, into continental Europe. Um, what United will do, they'll encourage each of their players at different times to stand up and give a speech, thanking their hosts and, and, the, and the hotel staff for, for putting them up. Um, They'll provide sort of signed shirts and pennants and things for the staff that they work with. They do everything they can to make um, the people who are there hosting them to, to feel a big part part of their team and to feel really appreciated. Um, they make sure that the players clean their rooms, which doesn't sound like much, but it's, they say <laughs> that you know all, all the maids should have to do is come in and change your bed and they shouldn't be picking things up off the floor so you keep your room spick and span. Um, and just generally kind of may, you know, seeing them um encouraging them to to, to think of others and be responsible in, in that aspect and also teach them um kind of cultural lessons so they'll go somewhere um to a city they'll visit for a tournament or they, they want to make sure that these players aren't just seeing one uh, set of astroturf pitches that could be anywhere in the world they you know they're going and exploring he used the example Tony really used the example of when they went to Budapest they went to um French Puskas' tomb um Mm-hmm. They 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 um, spoke to the tournament organisers about it and said that you know this is something we want to do. Can we make time for it? And um, 
lo and behold, everyone, all of the clubs ended up going because they were so inspired by the idea of going to see uh, Pushkis's team. They, they taught, taught them all about this player who you know, scored against England in the famous 6-3 game at Wembley, scored in, in the European Cup final for Real Madrid, was one of the legends of the game. So they, they kind of teach them a bit of history, a bit of culture, mm. make sure that, that while they're in the academy, they're there to train and to, and to improve as footballers, but they're also going to have an enriching experience because they're aware that only a fraction of them are going to kind of have a career in the game. So they don't want to come out of it feeling like these, these children have lost their childhood or, or, or have given up more than they're getting back. Um, so essentially they want their experience within the academy to be an enriching one. So no, no matter the outcome for them or at what point their journey will end, they want, um, they want them to feel, like I say, enriched by it. No, absolutely. I think, I think that's the overall theme of what we discussed here is, you know, the, the well-being of these of these young boys and teenagers is actually the, what should be at the forefront rather than the, the commercial aspects of the game. But I think, you know, we'd, we'd be naive to think that the, the latter isn't important to an extent and, you know, is, is, is present in the game. But I think the well-being of these boys is the is the key. So, Ryan, I think we've 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 reached our target time bang on. <laughs> so, brilliant. And, and thank you so much for coming on. As I mentioned at the start, uh, the Dream Factory inside the make-or-break world of football academies is out now. Ryan, where can listeners pick up a copy? All the usual places, Amazon, the usual um, booksellers. It's, it's released on the 5th of August, but it's available for pre-order, and I'm told that pre-orders really help. So if anyone is, is uh, says, feels like they might be interested in it, please do consider checking, checking it out and uh, placing a pre-order for, for when it's released in a few weeks' time. What, what, what I will say is it gets my seal of approval. I don't know how much that means to our listeners, but I, I really, it's, it's, Ryan, it's been a cracking read so far. Um, yeah, there's a thousand other questions I wish I could have asked you, but we've unfortunately run out of time. So pre-order if you can, guys. Yeah, cheers. All right, well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on and um, yeah, have a good one. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers, thanks a lot. Cheers.